gosh, why, see, how do I say this without sounding like an asshole? Too late. <laughs>「3Bs and then we'll talk chat GPT. Ooh, look at me on the rhyme. Alright, uh, rapper. Are you a psychopath? <sighs> DJ Jazzy Ed and the Fresh Prince of uh, Belmont. Okay, this might be an episode in and of itself. You can drink that problem into oblivion for a week and then we'll see what happens when you come back. Hey Steve, go start the recompute process. Oh, hold on, don't spill it all in the cold open. Hey guys, welcome back to Result Junkies Podcast. Paul is fired up today, uh, and I'm not sure we're going to get to talk about it, but we are going to rhyme a little bit, and we're going to take a little taste of an 83B, and then we're going to talk a little chat GPT. Uh, if this is your first time tuning into the show, show at resultsjunkies.com is the greatest way to find us for questions and comments. He is on social media at Paul Singh, and I am on social media at Pizza in Motion. <laughs> Mr. Singh, how are you doing today? Uh well, first off, I want to commend you on that ultimate dad flex of rhyming. Making all that rhyme is just the ultimate dad flex. I'm, I'm very impressed. <laughs> I'm, I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm a couple days out from uh, a well-deserved vacation with my wife, leave the kids with grandma, just disappear to St. John for a week, you know, relax. However, maybe we'll talk about this later on. A bunch of CPAs are, are you know, really getting on my wrong side this week. Uh, <laughs> I don't like surprises. Let me just put it that way. I don't like surprises. And uh, the IRS tax code is very complicated. And 83Bs are my least favorite topic of the week. That's maybe what I'll just say for now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And and I would say that, you know, uh, there was only a, for folks listening, and there's only a bit of a white lie there and where Paul said that he was doing good. So <laughs> he's somewhere in between spicy and literally running down the road with his head on fire. But to your point, Paul, how many founders do you think know what an 83B is and what the significance of them are? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't, I would think most of them do because so, so for founders, founders probably know this already, but for everybody else, the, basically when you create a company, uh, you now have ownership in that company, stock in that company. And there is a, uh, a, a section of the code called, uh, of the IRS code, I believe, uh, called 83B, which is basically a one-page document that you have to sign and file with the IRS. And by sending that letter within the first 30 days, there is a 30-day time limit. But in a nutshell, by sending that document, you get beneficial tax treatment on that equity if someday you were to sell. And I think most founders at the early stage are aware of this. And even if they're not aware of this, when their company was formed, I'll bet money that the lawyers just filed it on their behalf right away because it, it doesn't cost you anything and your share price is effectively zero at the time of issuance. So there's no tax hit. It, it, it's just, it's literally the cost of a postage stamp. It, 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 you know, it's done. So I would, I would bet you, I don't know the answer of what percentage know the answer of what an 83B is, but I would bet you that Every reputable attorney that has formed a company has just taken care of it on behalf of their founders. The tricky part with the 83Bs is they get very complicated if a company's already in flight. And if there's already a value issued or if there was any activity in the prior months that, that assigned a value, that's where it gets really tricky because if you do file that 83B, there can be unexpected tax hits uh, almost instantly. And at least in my very limited experience in these last couple of days, nobody, there, there's very few people that are actually really well-versed. That That's really where my frustration here is, is like, 
I know I got to pay my taxes. That's not what I'm worried about. Well, the, my frustration is, is that the 83B process has a strict 30-day timer on it. And like, it seems to me the number of CPAs that have actually dealt with in-flight companies um, is a lot less than I would like to, 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 to think about. So, <laughs> Yeah, I would also say just as a general rule, um, and I, I've tried to subscribe to this theory for as long as I can recall, if I'm going to do anything that's tax-related in terms of changes, I generally don't do it in March or April just because I know that the smartest people in the tax business are also dealing with their busiest time of year. And so their ability to focus on me up until April 15th is virtually zero. And then once I find, once April 15th, and this year I think it was April 18th, once April 18th finally rolls by, they've got 7,462 phone calls to catch up on. And they've been, you know, in the ring with Mike Tyson for seven rounds. And so they're punch drunk for the first few days after tax season ends. I, yeah, rookie mistake on my part. You know, we, um, yeah, but but that is actually the issue. The issue is that like, I've got this this timer ticking down and multiple CPAs, you know, that we have both personally and professionally are just all jammed up, you know, and it's, it's, yeah. it's just how it goes. Yeah. Oh, anyway, don't, don't ask me to borrow a buck at the moment because, uh, not going to go over well for anybody. <laughs> how are you doing? I'm doing okay, man. Rocking and rocking and rolling on a number of things right now. And I texted you some of the stuff that I'm getting via email right now. But the the sorts of cold pitches that I'm getting right now are bordering on lunacy. When you know I'm getting a cold email for somebody telling me that that you know their last couple of deals offered anywhere from 500x to 1,000x returns on investment, and it's just like I can't even. I just I'm speechless, man. I'm really speechless. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it probably is a good indicator of like how hard it is to raise out there right now, you know, because I'm, I'm seeing the same thing. It, it's just lots of cold emails. People must be buying these lists somewhere because it just, I, it's like people aren't even trying anymore. <laughs> well, cold emails, yeah, like you and I have always gotten cold emails. Just the quality of the cold email has gotten significantly worse. Like maybe people think that because we're getting more cold emails, they can like squeeze one by us on something crazy. I don't know. I, I really can't quite put it into words, yeah. but yeah, like it's, it's fine. It's easy to ignore. But as I've read a couple of them, I'm just sitting here like trying to comprehend what went through their head before they click send. You, you ever seen those like uh, YouTube videos where people sort of prank the, the spam callers, you know, or they're like, yeah. yeah. Like, if we had unlimited time, I, I don't mean to like, prank, I shouldn't make fun of this, but it's like, at some point, if, oh no, I would absolutely do what you're talking about. Yes, if I had free time, I would absolutely string some of these people along. Yeah, if I had time, I'd be like, okay, yeah, let's jump on a call for 15 minutes and then try to like either dismantle the entire argument or just coach them if they're even coachable. That's that's the thing from these cold emails. Like you want to believe that they're genuine, but like I don't know. There's just it's like yeah, Google. Like there's I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, anyway, so was the red flag that there was a thousand x return on their last uh, opportunity? I know, I know. It's pretty appealing. I really, I almost, I almost pushed the button, almost, <laughs> but not quite, not, not quite there yet. Oh. But with your help, I, I can get over the top. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, I'll, t I will say just as a placeholder for later, uh, in case we want to talk about this in a future episode. One thing I am doing differently lately with, with investments or potential investments is actually saying, hey, like after the first 20, 30 minute call, like, hey, will you just send me uh, contact info for three of your clients or three of your paying customers? Let me just call them or email them. And, and just anecdotally, 
80% of them never respond after that. And then the other 20%, like... Do, do you think that's part of the Frank J.P. Morgan thing where they're overestimating where they are on customers or do they just think it's too hard to go through the rub? I uh, See, I don't want to accuse anybody of lying. I, I, I think that I, I think that the hesitation... And I, if you ask me why there is such a high drop-off rate, it's just that I think that when you are forced to provide references, you have to come to terms with the fact that you have to make a decision whether those customers would actually describe the company in the way that you described it to me. Like, like this is true of B2B software. Like I, I, there's a couple investment opportunities where early stage B2B companies I've got, you know, I'm talking to and I've said like, Hey, I, I understand you may not have any customers yet, but like, can I talk to at least two or three people that are, have trialed it? You know, like just, even if they're not customers, let right. me just understand what, how they think about it. And anecdotally, it, it, you know, 80 or 90% of those requests just go unanswered because they're just like, I have to assume they just don't feel confident in what those trial users are going to say about the product. And maybe I'm doing that wrong. I don't know. But I, I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I am a little nervous after that whole Frank thing that maybe I should just kind of like put one little barrier up front and just see if people get over the top of it. So anyway, maybe that is a d different episode in the future. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I certainly don't think barriers are bad right now, just given that rounds have slowed down. So I do think, I mean, barriers, maybe not the exact right word, but but proof points, you know, the process has slowed down for everyone. So you're not really in danger of missing the round. Uh, I wouldn't say that I think, you know, th these should be arbitrary and not valuable, but I, I, I think it's prudent to take that extra step. I think, it's, I think it was always prudent to take the extra step. Maybe sometimes investors said, I want to be on this deal. And because of other people leading it, I, you know, I'm going to trust that somebody else has done the due diligence. Um, I, I think there's certainly a return to normalcy now in terms of you know what you would do for for due diligence to get from first conversation to you know completed wire transfer. Let's talk a little bit about ChatGPT, and I think we're going to try and take things in a little bit of a different uh, direction here. I, you know, there's been a lot of things that have been said about ChatGPT ad nauseum, and not, and not just here, but, you know, obviously everywhere else. We've talked about it quite a bit. I think one of the things that you and I started to pull the thread back on last week in pre-show, and I wanted to sort of fold into an episode, is this concept of what ChatGPT is going to have license to and what happens when they don't have license to it. And we talked a little bit about this last week, but teeing up the the example that you and I were using in, in our private conversations, what happens when you know, like there's two, there's two different buckets here. And we use the, I use the naked celebrity pictures as the sort of cheeky example of, Hey, somebody can issue takedown notices. You know, Julia Roberts gets naked pictures on the internet. They weren't supposed to be there. She sends a bunch of takedown notices. But if ChatGPT is crawling databases right now that have that sort of information, so knowledge of say this picture or knowledge of a crime, if you will, and then they don't get access to that database later on because that company sends them uh, a note saying, hey, you know, we're, we don't license you to scrape or download or search or whatever. You know, there's a couple of like really powerful questions here. How responsible is ChatGPT for acknowledging those and taking down the material? And then secondly, whose responsibility is it to make sure that that continues to happen? This is sort of the Wild West right now. And I think I, I don't think anybody truly knows what's going to happen here yet. But I think I, I think before I ramble too far into this, I think the first thing I would just say is that if you've got any public APIs or publicly available data on your website, you better just fire off an email to your attorney real quick and just make sure that your terms of service are extremely clear about, you know, disallowing scrapers or attributing your work. Like, 
whatever makes you and your attorney comfortable, just make sure that like your your TOS is tight. And now back to your question, like here, here's the thing. Training models cost money. I, I think I read somewhere that the yeah. latest chat GPT model took 34 days and a thousand plus GPUs to run constantly for a total cost of about $4.6 million of compute time. So, so sure. that's not even the, t- the, the cost to just keep it running. That's the cost just to train the whole thing. So now start to think about that, right? It's like, okay, if, if I ask you, if you just spent $4.6 million on that, on that model and I said to you, hey, please forget that my picture or my data is in that model. Well, that's, that's really complicated. Do I trust that you did it? Uh, you know, right. and then on top of that, do I know that you aren't getting any secondary benefits? Like, like the perfect answer would be, okay, yes, I will remove your data. We will retrain your mo- our model on this date, and it will not be in memory at all. That is the perfect solution. But the reality is, model owners are not going to say, "Oh, no problem. I'll go ahead and spend four and a half million dollars." Hey, Steve, go start the recompute process. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think I bet you there's going to be some regulatory stuff that happens here. Um, I don't know what that is, but I bet you it looks a little bit like the DMCA stuff. You know, so the I forget what DMCA stands for, but basically, if you are if you've copied my stuff and you've posted it, I can make a DMCA claim directly to your hosting provider and get you taken down if you don't. You know, there's a process for this, and it's a binary thing. You're either taken down or you're not. It's it, it's easy. Right, but using using that binary process for a second. Chat GPT isn't publishing this information. They're answering queries. So that's where I think, to your point, like there's some level of legislation, but it's it's complicated because the proof that you've complied with the DMCA is a screenshot of the offensive website or the the infraction on the website being removed. I'm not sure what the equivalent is here, and it brings up these let's take this a bit further. Let's just say using this example of Julia Roberts and some pictures, let's let's now say that Julia Roberts sues the, the person that took the pictures illegally. Is that fruit of the poisonous tree? Now, does that have to be stricken because you, the, the, the robot doesn't know about the pictures? So does the robot know about the lawsuit? Where did the robot find out about the lawsuit from? How, like, how far back do you scrub? Because you're asking, in our memories, I know who won the Super Bowl last year. So when you tell me to forget it, what other pieces of related information am I now supposed to forget? Right. That's right. Because that, for example, let's just use that analogy. Like, even if you forget who the Super Bowl winner was, in some way, that knowledge has influenced your perception of how that team might do in this quarter or this season. Exactly right. Exactly right. right. And that's, that's where this gets really complicated. So Look, I don't think two guys in their basements right now are going to figure this out. But I think the message to founders and businesses is, is at the very least, make sure your terms of service are, are, are pretty tight. And they probably are. If any reputable attorney has written it, they probably are. But it's just worth checking because of what we're talking about. Because this is super complicated, especially if you have any, any sort of APIs. Like, you know, it, it just gets really tricky really fast here. And, and you might as well just start from a position of knowing that you're locked down. If you ask me, if, if we're going to try to like maybe, you know, predict the future here, I think you start with these terms of service. I would bet you that Google and or some other large entities are going to come up with some sort of like tagging uh, methodology to, to help you block these crawlers. So for example, you know, with HTML, you can put no follow on the tag and then that tells the Google sure. crawler not to go in there. 
I bet you, so I, I think the next big thing that's going to happen is that some of these large entities are going to update the standards so that there's ways to tag things that you're okay with the crawlers picking up and things that you're not okay with. And then soon enough, once the first big lawsuit hits, I, I, it's inevitable that the regulatory guys are going to step in and there'll be some sort of legislation around this, not so similar than DMCA um, or some of the accessibility stuff that's out there. And, and the people that should be worried the most are going to be the model owners, you know, because like they're the ones that most likely are going to be faced with that financial burden of having to either come up with a way to definitively prove without a doubt that the data is not being used. Anyway, I, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but I, I think this is going to be a very fascinating next year or two. And it, and it plays into like, you know, the company, here we are in week, whatever, 27 million, where I don't tell you the name of the company, but, you know, a big part of our strategy going into the last half of this year is show, don't tell, and opening up our aggregate data via APIs and publicly accessible pages and stuff like that. And that's proprietary. We don't want that. Like I want people, if they're going to use that data, I want them to use it openly, but I want them to either come to my site and use it, or I want them to attribute us openly with our brand and everything if they repurpose it or use it in any derivative works. If somebody asks GPT a question that uses our data, until I know that I'm going to get a, a you know a credit for that, I'm not comfortable with it, you know, and that's, I'll, I'll be interested to see what other people think, you know, if, if, if you disagree with me, by the way, hit me up on social or email me. I'd love to hear your viewpoint on this. But because that, that's ultimately what this is about for me. It's like we put in all this work, all this money to get this, this data and this information. If you're going to use it somewhere else, I want to get credit for it. And right now, the, the GPT terminal doesn't do that. No, it doesn't. And it sort of leads to a question. We didn't talk about this in pre-show, so not trying to tee you up for something and, and, and you not having time to think about it. But putting your investor hat on for a second or, or maybe the advisor hat. When you think about derivative works and you think about people using these modules, these AI modules, whether it's ChatGPT or Bard or any of these folks, what's your, like if you knew that that was a central part of their model, setting aside the financial viability of it for a second, but if you just knew that these resources were a, a central part of their model in terms of growth, how does that make you feel about the investability of that company right now? If their reliance is very heavy on these products where we really haven't defined the sidelines and the goalposts yet. I'm inclined to sit out. I mean, that the, the, the risk is too high. I mean, like investing is already risky. Well, why add the additional risk before I forget the thought, by the way, you know, one other option here for, for the, for the GPTs of the world, whether it's open AI or others I've seen on Google, I think it's Google, it's either Google or Facebook where when you scroll past an ad, there's a little drop down that says, why did I see this? And then if you click that, it'll actually tell you, you know, some of the underlying info on, oh, well, it's because you looked at hmm. this or because of that. I haven't seen that. Yeah, okay. That that could be one potential intermediate step where, you know, these model owners could make, you know, information providers like me happy, where maybe that's where, you know, you, you know, you ask a question, if it uses any of our derivative data or anything like that to answer the question, maybe there's like a you know, attribution visible right there below it. You know, this answer powered by data from X, Y, and Z. I don't know. It yeah. could be an interesting, you know, intermediate step. It doesn't address the question of the takedown, like how do you get them to remove it? But that could be like an intermediate step to maybe appease people like me. Yeah, I think my opinion is the same on an investment right now in a company that relied heavily on these databases. Only it's, it, I think it would, 
to some degree, I think it would be like saying somebody wanted us to invest in a company that was based in, you know, Amsterdam for information rights. Uh, you know, I, I understand IP law in the U.S. I understand, generally speaking, IP law in Canada, Mexico, the U.K., um, I know where Amsterdam is on a map, and I would figure that their IP laws would, you know, be something that would be learnable for me. But it's not something that I'm a I'm an expert on, and so I would avoid investing in that company because of that insecurity. And I think directionally, places like ChatGPT and Bard, you know, like there are other resources that are going to pop up that are going to be similar for sure. There are going to be derivative works. There are going to be people who create other AIs that are built on these. But because we don't really understand all the rules yet, I don't know that I would, I don't know that I would, would want to be a first order investor. And I think one of the things I'd liken it to, like, you remember when Fitbit was a big deal? Yep. Mm-hmm. So I had one of the very early Fitbits and I thought it was revolutionary. And, and to a large degree, it was. That year that Fitbit started to become popular, I went to CES, the Consumer Electronics Show. And I think this is probably one of the things I find value about CES. Not, I wouldn't say that we've discovered a ton of companies by being at CES. But walking in the front of CES taught me a very valuable lesson that year. Fitbit had a massive booth up near the very front of the space, but so did seven or eight other companies. Massive booth. And then there were, you know, 10 or 15 other smaller knockoffish sort of products. And it immediately told me I didn't know how to pick a winner in that space because there were millions of dollars invested in all that front row of booths and here I thought Fitbit was the leader. And here's a bunch of other people that clearly have you know money to burn to be in this space. And so it, it caused us to avoid making some investments in that space at a time where we couldn't index the entire space. I think if you told me I could index everything that was associated with AIs and ChatGPTs right now, I would be more interested in it because um, because I wouldn't have to you know figure out who the winners are. I think the people that correctly pick the winners will be worth those those will be true massive unicorns, but it's, I think it's going to be really hard to pick them today. We've talked about this, at least, you know, adjacent topics to this, you know, in episodes months and months ago, but it, it really comes down to how we invest differently than a lot of other investors. And, and you're right. Like there are certain investors that love early stage speculative bets and they're going to win big. I mean, risk is always correlated to return, right? High risk, high return, that sort of stuff. So you pick the right one of those players, you're going to make a ton of money. <laughs> but you and I are really more early stage momentum bets, right? Where it's like, okay, well, you got three customers in the last three months. Well, what, can we bet that you might get a hundred more in the next year? Okay, let's take that bet, you know? And I always tell, I, I you probably heard it already. I always tell that story that like every bad investment decision I've ever made is when I sort of projected my own worldview out there. Like, <laughs> of course, nobody would pay 30% more for a black car during the 2008 recession. So why would I invest in Uber? That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, here I am in a basement. So that was a bad call. But yeah, I mean, I, but yeah, this whole AI thing, I just, I'm kind of sitting off to the sideline, partly because of your argument. Like, I don't know how to pick the winner, but also because it's not exactly clear where the businesses are here just yet. OpenAI clearly is becoming the platform. Everybody's, you know, their business model is pretty straightforward. You know, you have to pay to use the API. It's pretty straightforward. But aside from that, it's not really clear what what else, like where else the businesses are. Like it kind of, I'm going to feel a little old or weird when I say this. Other than OpenAI, 
everybody talking about GPT and AI kind of feels like blockchain three years ago. You know, it's like a, right. it's like a technology looking for a problem to solve. So I don't know. I'm just sitting it out right now. I'm, I'm looking at the pitches and stuff, but I haven't, Lord knows I haven't brought you any deals where I'm like, Hey man, I'm excited about this AI. Let's go look at it together. You know? <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, but I can see the use. Like I, you know, I, do you pay for superhuman, the male client? Oh, don't get me started. Okay. I won't. So as of right now, I, I did, I did pay for superhuman, but they have a couple of fatal flaws. Okay. So I'm still paying for it. I'm still using it. I, it's not the greatest thing, but it's not the worst thing. Well, separate thing. We'll figure out whether or not I keep paying for it, but they just sent out a, a feature update where, you know, it's, it's a, a automatic spell correction, grammar correction, just, you just mash the keyboard and it's just uh, uh, right, you know, it's two seconds behind you, just cleaning it all up, capitalizing, da, da, da. And out of curiosity, I clicked through to just understand how they were doing that. And of course it is machine learning and AI models. And it's like, okay, that's cool. That's cool right there. Where, you know, the idea that AI just kind of is in the background, like they didn't lead with it. They weren't like, AI is the future and here we are, we're integrating it. Like that doesn't excite me, but oh, you, you can like clean up my emails so that I don't look like a, you know, spelling bee uh, idiot. Okay, cool. All right, cool. Love it. <laughs> so I, I, I think that'll be interesting though. Like when do we start to see the additional tools that allow you to in, in integrate AI without having to integrate AI? I don't know. We'll see if that layer of companies exists or, or starts to emerge. It's still early. It's still early. I will tell you, I'm kind of annoyed that my Twitter feed is just all GPT. It's like, I'm getting to the point where I want to just filter those three letters and just see what's left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So on a brief segue, like, can I tell you my two reasons why I canceled Superhuman? Yeah. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they were very open. Like, to some degree, I respect their vigilance towards the this view. I don't agree with it, but I, I respect that they're they're not in the category of mission creep. If you use superhuman, I assume that you have your email threaded in conversations. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I just, it, I don't, I've never been able to get past that. I can't do threaded conversations. And so what? superhuman does not support an unthreaded or unconversation view. They believe everything should be threaded and they don't provide the user the ability to turn that feature off. Are you a psychopath? How do, how do you, yes. how yes. do you then keep I, in, yes. Okay, this might be an episode in and of itself. How do you, <laughs> I, I can't imagine an inbox without threading. Like, how does that? I understand. Again, that might be a separate. I understand. And I, I, trust me when I say, I get it because I can't imagine an inbox with threading. So I, 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 get, I clearly get that there are strong views on the subject. Here's the other oh, one man. that, this is the one that puzzles me that they haven't fixed. So Superhuman does not have Google Drive, a connection to the Google Drive API. So when somebody sends an attachment to you that that's in Google Drive, Gmail knows how to populate that. Superhuman doesn't, so it just doesn't show the attachment. It doesn't tell you the attachment's missing. It just doesn't show the attachment. And to, in my opinion, like I said to them, I go, look, I, I, it's inconvenient when you tell me I have to go find the attachment and here's a link. It's unusable for me when you don't tell me that I'm missing an attachment. And those those were the two reasons why I walked away from it. I think that one's fixed now. Gotcha. I, don't quote me on it, but I think that one's fixed. Out of curiosity, what's your underlying email platform? Are you guys using Gmail or uh, Outlook or what are you guys doing? So, <laughs> so I'm using um, I'm using Gmail. We've had some internal discussions about some products that are out there that are just you know, just on the cusp of being um, tested. So Russell is using something called Things, another thing called 
Oh God, is it called Sane or Sane Inbox or something like that? So, oh yeah, I've heard, I've seen that. Yeah, so so I am going to start testing something. I'm going to test three things, and I'll report back on all three of them. I'm gonna I'm gonna test a, an email client because I have just been using Gmail so far. I'm going to test a product called Beeper. Uh, have you heard of Beeper yet? Mm-mm. This goes way back in the day, and I wish I could remember the name of it. But a million years ago, when AOL Instant Messenger was a thing but there were a few other messengers that had popped up. There was a program back then that would consolidate all of your messenger apps into one place so that you got all your messages in one place. Beeper is today's version of that. It consolidates WhatsApp, Instagram, iMessage, Twitter DMs, Android SMS, LinkedIn messages, Facebook messages, Slack messages, all into one app. So all of your messaging from all the platforms comes through in one place. And I'm horrible at checking six of those nine that I just named. So I'm super thrilled to have all of those in one place. And I'm going to begin testing that shortly. And then the other thing is, have you heard of Arc yet, the browser? Yeah. It is a new browser that's supposed to be incredibly low friction and very extension friendly. And so I just got an invite to Arc and I'm going to begin testing Beeper and Arc in the next week or two. I'm Googling it now. I'll have to check that out. Arc.net. Okay. All right, we'll check it out. I think we should pin it right there, man. Uh, I had no, I feel like, uh, this feels like a weird relationship we have. It's like, I'm still learning new <laughs> things about you, Ed. <laughs> I, I, I I find myself still a little disturbed that you don't read threaded email. Like, I just, I don't get it. So what disturbs you, what, tell me what disturbs you more. The fact that I don't read threaded emails or the fact that I have 309,000 unread emails in my inbox. Well, my yeah, that number that doesn't scare me because I feel like uh, that's probably similar to mine. Yeah, okay. But I just seem so like I know I'm already a little scatterbrained. I just can't imagine like having like to me when I see a threaded email, it represents one conversation on the screen, and when I click through it, lets me expand the whole con- like to me that makes a whole lot of sense. But if that email has six responses on it, the idea of seeing that on my page six times like you do like blows my mind. Well, the problem with it is when you have forks. So when somebody, so like it's fine when everybody replies and nothing breaks off from the thread. But once you start having pieces of that conversation that go in different places, then I don't have everything in the in the discussion. It doesn't it doesn't all. That's fair. So, the, so that's that's where my brain starts to starts to spin around in circles. So if only artificial intelligence and machine learning could be used to separate those uh, thread deviations on your behalf. I mean, that, there only, you go. There's the request for startup. If only if only artificial intelligence could, uh, you know, separate emails. So we're so we're leaving ourselves with two things. We want AI to separate emails and um and we want to we want to dig into this this 500x return that uh, that i got the email. oh by the way no it wasn't i, I went back to look at it now it was not a, this is a great thing it was not a thousand x return it was a 1010 x return so if whoever sent that to me is listening to the podcast they know that i just threw shade at them for their 1010 x <laughs> return so i love it I love it. All right. All right, man. What uh where are you at this week? Any any fun stuff going on? Uh it it is Freddie Awards week. So for travel nerds, um, it's the people's choice of the travel industry award. We get some 10, 15 million people to vote every year um on their favorite hotel and airline loyalty programs. And by the time this episode goes live, the winners will have been announced at the uh Smithsonian Air and Space Udvar Hazi Museum out near Dulles Airport. And yours truly is one of the organizers and MCs for that wonderful, wonderful spiel. That's pretty cool. I like it. I will uh, root for you from the island of St. John. We're going on a trip without the no kids. By the time this episode comes out, I will have gotten a good burn on me. So uh, 
Don't 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 bug me unless I feel like I'm going to be dealing with this tax problem next week too. But hopefully not. We'll see. We'll see if I'm uh, still spicy next week. <laughs> you can drink that problem into oblivion for a week, and then we'll see what happens when you come back. <laughs> That's so. right. That's right. That's right. All right, man. Always fun chatting. Talk to you soon. All right. Take it easy.